0: Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Nicola, and you are watching Aspen Talks Health, where we discuss alternative healing modalities and how to show up more compassionately in life. And exactly on that point is why I introduced this wonderful guest, Shelley Centerfit. She is a family lawyer turned psychotherapist because she enjoyed so much the pleasure of of, of having her her clients become be able to divorce kindly and then co-parent well. So.
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy that you're here. I'm glad to be here.
0: What's a very typical issue that your clients face?
1: Yeah, so I see pretty much three categories of clients. So sometimes it's individuals and couples who are thinking about getting divorced. They're not sure. Can this relationship be saved? And so a typical issue there would be trying to discern whether they have the the desire and the commitment to really work to repair their marriage. Um, A second category of clients would be those who are in the midst of it, really in the thick of oftentimes a difficult, high-conflict divorce. Um, That tends to be more individuals who are coming to me to say, help me manage this stress you know how can i get through this incredibly painful litigation without you know completely losing my mind or losing my job and um, becoming a person i don't want to be and then the third category of people are folks who are on the other side of it so both individuals and couples who have gotten divorced and now they're realizing we've have, had some bumps in the road you know maybe we're not really sure how to co-parent in this new world post-divorce and we need some help in navigating um you know how we can really do right by our kids right. um even though we're not married any any longer
0: yeah yeah that's a very important one
1: it is so when the divorce is actually
0: obvious um how do you, how do you know or when has it gone too far? Are there markers? Can you tell, like, this is not reversible?
1: Yeah. You know, I usually tell folks that, in my view, just about every relationship can be repaired and rehabilitated. The exceptions to that would be where there is untreated addiction, um, serious mental health issues, or domestic violence. Because if, if those issues aren't being addressed, then it's really not a safe or healthy relationship for folks to be in. But barring those situations, I think that any relationship can be repaired if, and this is a big one, if both partners are really committed to doing some hard work. You know, even where there's been infidelity, where there's been serious betrayals, um, you can get past that if you do the work. And so where I would say, you know, it's really too late is when one or both people just doesn't really have the the fire in the belly, you know, to to do the work. Because I always say it's hard, you know, you're going to have to dig in, you're going to have to make some serious changes. So do you have the will, you know, to make that happen?
0: Nice to hear that trust can be rebuilt, because Mm -hmm. that's for me, I trust more often than not mm-hmm. until you prove you're not trusted, a trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And then once I that line is crossed, it's really hard for me to reverse. Mm-hmm. So, but nice if there's both sides really willing to make the effort. I can see that helping. Yeah,
1: I mean there has to be an openness, right? Yeah. So, so if you said I'm sorry, that line is crossed, I. I don't see any way to, to get back to where we were before. It doesn't matter what my partner might do from this point forward, I am not open to it. Well then, Done. there's nothing you can do, yeah. right? But on the other hand, if your partner is saying, I really am so remorseful, I'm, I hate it that I caused you this harm, what can I do to earn your trust? Uh, Within reason, then right. you, you all can, can navigate that and say, okay, these are the things that would make me feel better and give your partner a chance to see whether she or he can do those things.
0: Right. Yeah, that's fair.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: If the divorce is imminent,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do you control your mental state? Because it's so easy to get angry and upset and hurt and all the emotions, and, and then you behave not exactly how you want to show up. So, how, yeah. how do you stay
1: grounded? It's a big one, right? Yeah? Because this is, for most people, I would say going through a divorce is one of the most difficult life experiences. Second, only maybe to the death of of a loved one. Um, But in some ways, it is a death, right? It's a death of this relationship that was probably really important to you. So, um, this is where I really turn to a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge proponent of a regular meditation practice um, for a couple of reasons. One, the research is just very clear that it helps us to regulate our emotional state. Right. Um, it helps us to, to manage anxiety and depression and um, really just become more, more thoughtful, more present in our lives as opposed to being reactive, right. which is what happens for so many folks going through a divorce. So that's something that I talk to all my clients about is, you know, what do you know about mindfulness? Are you open to learning more and and let's see if we can establish a practice to see if it'll support you through this time. And then related to that, of course, and I know I'm biased because I'm in the field, but is having a therapist. Yeah. I'm always surprised by how many people want to try to manage their emotional state on their own while they're going through this incredibly difficult time. And I I oftentimes will say to folks, you know, if you were to get some horrible disease like cancer, God forbid, you probably would not say, well, I'll figure that out. You know, I'll just I'll see what what maybe will work or not work. You're going to go to the oncologist. Right. And you're going to find out what your treatment options are and and then figure out what feels right for you. A divorce, in some ways, is is just as calamitous as getting a terrible, you know, physical health diagnosis. Right. So it's so important that you have a professional who can support you through that process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's got to bring up some serious, deep wounds and triggers For of sure. uh, childhood and all sorts of things that you definitely need help guiding through. Right.
1: What are some mindfulness tricks?
0: Is there anything that you can share?
1: Well, I guess I would certainly say having a daily practice of any length is the most important thing. Yes. There was one study that found that meditating for as little as two minutes each day can rewire your brain. Wonderful. Now, we can all find two minutes, right? Yeah. That study found the optimal amount of time was 12 minutes. Um, but even if you can't find 12, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, there are some days when life just gets ahead of me and I realize, Time to go to bed, and I haven't meditated. Right. I will set the timer for two minutes and nice. connect to my breath, calm, ground myself into the present moment. Um, usually, what happens is I don't want to stop after two minutes, yeah. you know, once you get going. Yeah. So, just developing, figuring out what time of day is going to work best for you um, is what I usually advise clients to do. But, you know, the other thing is we don't have to necessarily be sitting on a meditation cushion with our eyes closed um, in order to be mindful. We can be mindful when we're stuck in traffic at the S-curve, right? right? (laughs) Um, We can tune into our breath, take a pause, observe what's around us, really grounding ourselves, using all of our senses to that present moment. And it really can send that message to your nervous system that, as well yes we don't we're not trying to you know outrun the tiger which is what happens when our heart starts racing and we get dysregulated right so it's something that really it's a tool that's with us always yeah it's true it's just
0: remembering to do it
1: that's right which is why a daily (laughs) practice is so important because as you do it on a day-to-day basis it then becomes much more natural to slip into that that mindful moment when you're sitting in traffic
0: I think making it part of, absolutely. I uh-huh. think incorporating it throughout your day is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, incorporating it into part of your morning routine it makes it more automatic mm-hmm. because you brush your teeth, you know, you have your exactly. system, and you know you're going to sit there for 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Right.
1: Yeah. that's right yeah it also for me at least it sets the tone for my day exactly i love it when i get into a good rhythm of, of really beginning my day with yeah. just even five minutes yeah. you know ten minutes That's true. Um, because you then are starting from that place of feeling centered yeah. and calm as opposed to feeling harried and yeah. you know behind the eight ball
0: right and you get to choose how you want to show up that day that's right i like to end my meditation with how am i what's my choice today hmm Switching gears a little bit um, how do you deal with angry emails again? Do you go back to that breath or any other
1: for sure? I mean one of the things that a Mindfulness practice teaches us is to pause Hmm. right not to to react but to wait a moment uh, Notice what's going on and then decide how you want to intelligently respond. So I usually um, Suggest to all of my clients that if you get an angry email from your spouse and you feel like you have to respond right away, you know, save it to your drafts folder. Or if you just have to hit send, send it to yourself. But wait at least until the next day to make sure that you're saying what actually is important to be said as opposed to just whatever gets churned up inside of you in that moment.
0: It also gives space for a little perspective of understanding where the other person is coming from. That's right. And what the real the hurt is or what the need is from the other person's versus just the
1: attack that's right right um that's lovely if people can tap into some compassion for their spouse (laughs) in the midst of a divorce i have Mm. to say that's often a a tall order to fill Uh, i hear you um but at a minimum if you wait you know, there's very few things that are truly an emergency, and so if they are, you ought to be picking up the phone and calling, not yes. sending an email or texting, right? right? So pretty, pretty much anything that you get via text or email can wait certainly several hours, probably 24 hours, mm-hmm. and I, I always tell folks, you know, get out of this, this expectation that our culture seems to have created that just because we have the internet in our pocket, you know, with our smartphones, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to respond to everything right away. Surprisingly um, difficult it is because I think so many others around us are are succumbing to that expectation. But it's really important in a divorce that you not respond to that angry email right away. You're probably going to say something that you'll regret, and then it'll just, you know, build on on one angry email to the next. This
0: builds on this this next question builds on exactly this point. But mm-hmm. uh, how do you separate without causing harm? To or
1: do you mean to yourself or to kids
0: or both? Uh, Let's start with your, to your spouse, and mm-hmm. then to your kids. We'll go. We'll yeah. move on to the kids.
1: So, the uh, the hardest part I think for um, uh, to not give in to harming your spouse is realizing it's not going to do you any good, right? Mm. So, when I was practicing law, I used to tell clients, just don't do anything that is going to make your spouse mad and they would look at me like I was crazy because they're like we're getting divorced we're really mad at each other right so that there certainly is hurt there's deep emotional um, feelings and wounds that have happened to get you to this point but you do have choices from this point forward about whether you're gonna do things to try and you know dig the knife in a little deeper or not right and so as hard as it is, what is in your best interest, and certainly in terms of your, your spouse's uh, interest, is to make the choice of doing less harm rather than more. Hmm. Um, and again, I go back to that mindfulness practice because that requires taking a little bit of a pause and being intentional about how you want to uh, show up when, yep. you're, when you're divorcing as opposed to being reactive. Yeah, you bring up a good point. How, how divorce
0: can actually cause harm to yourself, and that might be through the feelings of guilt of leaving the person and separating. Now they're alone. I suffered that when I I wasn't divorcing, but mm-hmm. I was separating from my ex, and mm-hmm. I, for a year, tortured myself thinking that I had just destroyed, you know, really destroyed him um, emotionally and from his heart, and, um, and I think. What I, I understand now is that it, having the perspective that you're doing the person a favor if you're not there 100% in the most loving capacity that you can, mm-hmm. you're taking them away from someone that could be that perfect partner for them. So maybe right. short term there's pain, but long term it, there's there's benefit.
1: And even if you're not the person who's initiating the the end of the relationship, you're the one who's feeling really, really wronged. Um, mm. Ultimately. Holding on to that is only going to hurt you. True. It's not going to hurt the other person. And so I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I let go of this anger, then it's somehow condoning what she or he did or, you know, I, I don't want to let him off the hook. But really you're letting yourself off the hook if you can release that anger. Again, much easier said I than done. I was just to say, how do you do that? <laughs> well, this is where I think a good therapist comes in, right? right? Yeah. Um, but but I think we even if we... If we can just express the intention that this is what we want to do, even if we're not able to ultimately do it in every moment, we're at least trying to head in that direction. And so when people come to me and say, I want to, you know, consciously uncouple or how can I do this in the in the least harmful way? I always say you've got to start with yourself, Hmm. get yourself in that good place where you're not going to be holding on to that anger um, any more than, than, you know, you must in that moment.
0: Yeah, makes sense. To to see how it possibly could have served you Mm -hmm. is an interesting technique that I've learned recently. Yes. You know, how is the relationship, how is even the bad parts of the relationship in service to your soul? Mm -hmm. And If you can find that answer, that's so key sometimes.
1: Yeah. I mean, life presents us opportunities to learn from. Exactly. As sometimes they're really painful, you know, hard opportunities, but I do believe that that there is a lot that we can all learn, even when a, a relationship comes to an end.
0: Yeah, so true. Okay, let's switch now to the children because I think this yeah. is such a big topic. I know a lot of parents stay together
1: mm-hmm. for
0: way longer than they would uh, if there weren't kids involved. Mm-hmm. And again, if I may uh, add my inf- my uh, theory here is that I think it does a disservice to the children. Mm-hmm. Of course, providing stability for the kids is important, but I think you're also providing what a healthy relationship should look like. That's right. And if they're not seeing love and intimacy and and genuine care for each other, how are they expected to then show up that way in the future?
1: Right. I mean, we're really modeling for our kids how to be in relationship. The reality of life is that sometimes relationships don't work out. So I think that right. parents who decide to part ways can really teach their kids a whole lot about resilience and about the fact that sometimes, even when two people decide they don't wanna stay married, they can still be committed to each other as co-parents. Right. They can still be on the kids' team, even if they're not jointly on their same team any longer. Right. So I'm, I'm not a fan of, of folks who say, well, I think we should just stay together for the kids because kids are perceptive. Yeah. You know, they they pick up on that when they know that it's not a happy relationship that their parents are in. Right. Um, and is that really the lesson that we want to teach kids that when they're in a situation that simply you know isn't right for them, that they should stay in it, or do we want to teach them that they can, in a kind way, without doing you know additional harm, they can make changes and still be all right? Yeah. Is there a too young
0: age? I want to get this myth out altogether. Mm. You know, a lot of parents want to wait till they're 18 or at least, yeah. nine.
1: no? There's no good age. It's hard no right. matter when you decide to part, part ways. I mean, I've had some clients who said, well, I think it was good that my kids were really little because they never remembered when mommy and daddy lived together, right? They yeah. All they ever knew was that I have two houses, you know? some These days I'm at mommy's and these days I'm at daddy's. Um, mm. And so that that may work for some families. Um, I've had other parents who felt like it was better to wait till their, their kids were older, you know, uh, more established in their routines. Um, I don't, you know, better able to process. to process it, and also just be apart from each parent because it is hard for little biddies to be, you know, away from from their parents for a long period of time, right. um, from either parent. So there's no magical answer for when is the right time I think it really comes down to what's going on in your relationship and right. if you the two of you have gotten to the place of recognizing this really isn't going to work then I think that's the time yeah. and you'll hopefully do it in a way that's um, putting the children's interests ahead of your own again easier said than done but that is the key I think to an amicable divorce for where those parents are able to say all right this feels awful for me, but I know it's the right thing for my kid. Hmm. And so I'm gonna be an adult here and I'm gonna do this thing. Yeah. How do you co-parent well? Well, I think one of the key pieces is uh, what not to do. So let me just start with that. Because if if I could leave divorcing parents with only one piece of advice, it's you cannot, under any circumstance, say anything negative about the other parent in the presence of your child. Wow. Again, Huge. hard for people sometimes <laughs> no. to do when they themselves get activated, but kids know that they're a product of both of their parents, and so they know that there's some ways in which they're more like one parent, in other ways they're, they're more like the other. If they hear one parent bad-mouthing the other, then they, they might start thinking, oh, well, maybe you know, mommy doesn't like this part of me because I know I'm more like daddy in this way. And let me also just say, I'm talking about mommy and daddy, but I also just want to acknowledge that of course there's families come in all shapes and sizes. Right. Um, and, and so there can be two mommies or two daddies or you right. know any configuration, but that is um, probably what I work with more often are Good. different sex couples. Um, so, you know, Talking badly about the other parent might feel good in the moment, but it can be really damaging to a child long-term. Yeah. And I see families where that's happened. It can be really hard to, to um, you can't unring that bell. You know, yeah. once a kid has heard you saying, gosh, your other parent is terrible for this reason or that, that sticks with them, um, so that's the the one thing I always start whenever a divorcing couple comes to me with saying, "This is just my absolute rule. You you cannot do that." Yeah. So the flip side of the things you can do are really to maintain that goodwill. You know, to not do anything to, that upsets the other, so that you can work together. Yeah. Because the reality is, you know, you get divorced. You have this parenting plan, this document that says the kids are going to be with this parent on these days and the, the other parent on those days. Um, but you can't anticipate every possibility. You're, you're going to have some times when you need to switch the schedule, right? If y- the two of y'all are not you know, on good speaking terms, then you're not going to be able to make those adjustments. And ultimately, it's the kids that suffer. So really staying in a good place with one another is probably you know, one of the most critical things yeah. um, to co-parenting.
0: Is there a schedule that's more effective one week on one week off? I know there's five and two and it right. can get really complicated yeah and I feel I, I would almost think that shuffling the kids around that much is more damaging than one week on one one, one week off I don't you know, know but
1: every kid's different really so parents ask me this all the
0: time like, okay. what's
1: the best schedule yeah. And I always say, you know, what's going to be best for your kids? I don't know that because every kid is different. So for kids that have a really hard time with transitions, yes. then, yeah, the, the 2 2 five schedule is really yeah. tough. So that's where kids are with one parent every Monday, Tuesday, the other parent every Wednesday, Thursday, and then they alternate weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So in any given week, the kid is with one parent for two days, the other parent for five days. Yeah. And then the next week it flip-flops. Um, so yeah, it, it's a lot to keep up with. Although Google calendars make it easy, yeah. right? We can map all that out, recurring right. events. True. Um, so if a kid really can't handle transitions then that's going to be more difficult rough. than doing a week-on, week-off schedule.
0: Okay.
1: In my ideal world with a divorcing parent, I really love for them to try out whatever schedule they think is going to be best for their children. I like for them to try it out before they finalize the divorce. Because otherwise, it's just pure speculation. I no one has understand. a crystal ball. And so if, if you don't ever try it out and you just put in the agreement, let's just say the, the 225 schedule, and then it turns out to be a nightmare... Well, then you're going to have to go back to court and modify it unless the two of you can just mutually agree we're going to do something different. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard
0: that if if the mother gets a majority of the custody the kid is there majority of the time then they you know they come the kid comes home from school and just goes to his bedroom is on his phone doing his homework and there's not so much uh, interaction versus uh, if a father only has a weekend it's like we've got a we've got a whole schedule and the father wants to do everything with the kid and so it, it, it and then it, there's a disappointment on the father's end when the kid just wants to go to his bed and be on his phone. Yeah. So how do you manage the expectations on both ends?
1: So this is why I'm really a fan of both parents having both weekday time with their children and weekend time. Uh, so if you only have your kid on the weekend, then of course it is easier to, to say, okay, We sometimes we used to call them the Disney dads, right? Yes. The dads who want to just come in and do all the fun things. Right. That's not real life. You know, parenting is about homework and... Time and routine, right? And sometimes some discipline, right? In addition to the fun stuff that we can do on the weekends. So I think it's really important for both parents to have opportunities to to parent in the the school week time as well as the weekend time. That makes sense. Yeah. But I'm not a fan of kids going to their room and just playing on their phones, regardless, right? I, it was, these phones are really—I I I know that's just an aside, but yeah. I will say I, I think that we're only beginning to have some awareness about the damage that the phones are doing, really, for all of us, yeah. but particularly for little developing brains, right? Yeah. One study showed that the kids who spend a lot of time online are not developing empathy um, because they're—they're they're not interacting with real-life human beings who are expressing real live emotions um and so i'm i'm a fan of of limiting the online use for grown-ups and kids yeah for that reason
0: i've heard that they're not getting the face-to-face maternal uh, gaze yes so they're not they're actually not able to recognize facial expressions uh, and then get the natural cues that are not spoken yeah so they're really losing a communication skill
1: it, it's. I think we're gonna only know in the future when we have the data, right, to really study it, just the damage that has been done um, by these phones. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, and the need for the reassurance from all the likes, and if they don't get that, my goodness, right. and the negative comments. Um, any other tips for parents and co-parenting well, or? Anything else that you want to
1: share? Well, I think they have to have good communication skills. Yeah. And again, a lot of my clients sort of look at me like I'm crazy when I say that because they're like, if we had good communication skills, <laughs> we might still be married. Right. Um, and, you know, it's never too late to learn those communication skills. So I've, I've had a lot of divorcing parents who've said to me, gosh, if only we had come sooner, we might not be getting divorced because wow. this would have helped us to work through some areas of conflict. Um, So that's, again, where I think a a skilled professional can help divorcing parents learn um, better ways of communicating. Right. You know, when we don't communicate, we create stories in our heads. Um, We usually fill in the gaps with generally negative information, like the worst-case scenario. And so learning to check in with one another to say you know, what's going on here? Because this this seems curious to me, as opposed to creating an internal narrative yeah. about what must be going on here and then acting from that place.
0: So true, absolutely true. That's key to relationship 101. That's right. <laughs> it's sure. true because the stories we create are fascinating yeah. <laughs> and they're often negative. You're absolutely right. And if you just have yeah. the moment to ask, not blame, not That's accuse, right. ask, Yeah, it, it really helps. It, it makes really a difference. Does. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the community
1: um, well I guess we've've talked um, I, think we've, on I think we've talked about everything I know you had mentioned maybe giving people some some homework that yes, they might reflect please, on that's right. and so that, that maybe is the place to, to leave there. it um, so on the, the, um, the subject of communication skills you know I think it's useful sometimes to just reflect on our own communication styles whether we're in a relationship or not, maybe it's communication with a family member or friend or even a a coworker. But um, I'd like to invite viewers to just um, think back on a difficult conversation that you may have had recently and um, think about whether there's anything you might have done differently now that you have the benefit of hindsight, Mm. now that you're not actually in that moment where you may be a little triggered. is there anything that you might want to change if you could go back in time? And if there is, it's never too late to go back to that person and say, gosh, you know, I really made a poor choice of words there. I'm sorry about that. This is, would have been a better way to express myself. Yeah. Um, and then from that, I think it's useful to say, okay, going forward, here's how I want to show up when I communicate. Love right? It. Here's what I learned from, from recognizing that that wasn't. The, the most productive or the healthiest way to show up um, so that we can be intentional about how we communicate with Amazing.
0: others. Amazing. You know, and just doing that opens up that vulnerability and being open and honest. And it doesn't matter how the other person responds. Oftentimes right. it's just for you. It's a, a self-forgiveness. Sure. And then showing how you, sharing how you want to show up
1: mm-hmm.
0: really opens the door for the other person to do so as well.
1: You know, we can only control ourselves, or how we show up. We can't control others. Right. But it's amazing when we change what's going on with us, right. what that does um, open the door to Absolutely. with others. So true. Shelly, it's been such a pleasure. Thank, thank you so much for
0: being on the show. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. You guys, check out AspenTalksHealth.com. You'll find all of Shelly's contact information. She's obviously a very qualified psychotherapist and she will help you through some challenging times for sure thank you for tuning in